Uh, you may be seated. Good morning, Hope Church. It's good to be with you. Again, my name is Michael Goodlin. I am the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship at Lehigh University. Uh, we were able to join you guys here about a month ago after our summer camp, uh, and I forgot my Bible. And Taylor said, all right, well, I'll give it back to you if you come up and preach again. So he didn't actually say that. He was going to give it to me the other day, but he forgot it. So it's good to be with you guys. Um, We're going to jump in to the book of Proverbs this morning. Uh, Proverbs is a series that we looked at at Cornerstone, which is where my family and I worship a sister congregation for hope, and I thought it would be a good word to look at. We're in Proverbs 31. And the book of Proverbs is like an old-school leadership manual. The book of Proverbs was developed out of Solomon's court for young and aspiring courtiers, to try to be standard bearers in their community. The book of Proverbs answers the question, how do I become royal? How do I become kingly or queenly? It's like an older version of Andrew Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, or the uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, except Proverbs defines success at the juncture of God's will as it is applied to all the particular circumstances of our fallen world. And it's into that problem and that nexus that King Lemuel is dropped. King Lemuel is the one who is speaking here in Proverbs 31, and we don't know that much about King Lemuel. There's no historical record um, in the Bible of him outside of this. And based on that, along with his name, it's most likely that Lemuel is a proselyte. He is somebody who has been converted. He's come to believe in the God of the Bible, the Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And Lemuel is positioned in a very interesting way in the book of Proverbs because he is the only other king that we meet. The entire book of Proverbs is based on the authority and the weight of King Solomon. Uh, And there's lots of Proverbs uh, in the collection from chapter 10 to to 30, lots of sayings about how to be kingly or become a king, but we don't meet any other king in the book of Proverbs aside from Lemuel. And so if we follow the narrative arc of the book of Proverbs, we're introduced to Lemuel in such a way that we're we're, we're told that he's a graduate. He's placed in the book at the very end to say, hey, here's somebody who has made it. Lemuel is someone who has applied himself to Solomon's school of wisdom. He's learned how to bridle his tongue and his anger. He's learned how to be generous. He's learned how to navigate all the different ups and downs of life. And yet, this person who's the star pupil from Solomon's Academy of Wisdom has two things that he still needs to learn how to deal with. Two things that he needs to be reminded of, and it's done in this passage, and that is family and marriage and generosity and justice. Those are the two things that this graduate par excellence is reminded of. And hopefully that's really encouraging for any of you, any of us with kids, small kids, that, wow, here's this guy who was, he, he made it to the top of his class in one of the best you know, schools available, so to say, And he still didn't know what to do with his family. So if we sometimes struggle with knowing how to be good parents, my goodness, it's encouraging to know that he did too. But I also recognize that there are 
other groups of people here, not just families uh, with young kids or older kids like myself. Um, Some of you are not married, or you're younger and you think, oh, marriage is way beyond, like, why would I ever think about that? And to you, chapter 31 has this to say, you need to pay attention to this because you're actually the original author's original audience. Because even though this passage is about how to lead well and about family, it's addressed to a single man. It's addressed to a single person. And so just in the same way that you would think about a vacation destination before you get there so that you know how to spend your time and what to do and what sort of sights to see, even if you're younger, even if marriage isn't even on your radar, marriage and family, now's a good time to start thinking about it so that when you get there, you know what to do. I also recognize there's a segment of us that maybe you have had family, but you don't anymore, either due to death an old age or divorce. And so this, far from bringing enjoyment and encouragement, might result in, as we read this, thinking bitter thoughts or frustration or shoulda, woulda, couldas. And to you, this passage says that anything good we see in this family, in chapter 31, is ultimately only fulfilled in the blessing of the resurrected community in Christ, the new bride of Christ, the church, and the new heavens and the new earth. Now, that doesn't take away any of the pain or the frustration, but it does remind all of us that regardless of our circumstances, no matter how good or how difficult, none of us will be fulfilled in this life the way that this passage sort of uh, elevates it. So with that in mind, let's look at chapter 31. And we need to remember that, that Hebrew poetry poetry in general, but Hebrew poetry in particular, is trying to derive the maximum amount of meaning from the minimal number of words. Okay, it's dense. Hebrew poetry is maximum meaning with minimal words. So we're going to read chapter 31 together, and I'll pray for our time in the word. But then as we go through it, we're going to reread it so that we can get an adequate grasp of what's actually happening in this passage. So look at me, if you will, Proverbs chapter 31. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed. And pervert the rights of the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those who are in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty, and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. 
She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garnets and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. This is God's word. And Father God, as we begin to dig into this beautiful passage and hear the words that Lemuel's mother taught him, I pray that we would recognize that this isn't simply the words of man, but they are your words to us through your spirit and ultimately uh, crystallized in Jesus, who has become for us wisdom and righteousness. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Lemuel's mother jumps in in verse 2 with an intense love for her son. Lemuel's mother is reaching back. Look at verse 2. She says, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? She's winding back the clock with each successive line, going further and further and further back to her commitment to her son, back before he was grown, back before he was born, back before even he was conceived, and going to her vows, the bedrock of their relationship and their family. Now, these could either be her wedding vows that she made or, or vows kind of like Hannah's mother made for Samuel when he dedicated him to the Lord. And what she's doing is she is calling out this intense love for him because she's about to lay on some hard truths about the reality of this world. Um, it's important to note that in our translation here, when it says, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? It sounds like she's being kind of naggy, like, what, what in the world are you doing? Like, wants to slap him around. Uh, but the word ma here in Hebrew is probably better translated like the NIV does, in it, which is listen. Because all throughout wisdom literature, uh, the, the teacher never asks a question of the student uh, to start an exhortation. They always plead with them, listen. So she has a threefold listen, listen, listen. And she does it with such loving kindness because, again, she's about to lay on the truth. And it's like she has two knobs right in front of her, two volume buttons that she can turn up, love and logic. And notice she doesn't pit them against each other. She does them both at the same time. She covers the entire conversation with commitment and care for her child before she talks to him about some of the harsh realities and reminds him about the dangers of ruling and leading before the power gets to his head. And it's an important lesson here because it's really tempting for us as parents to do one or the other. Right? Some of us 
just drip with love and care for our kids, with empathy. Like our hearts just break for them, but we don't have a spine. And we let our kids walk all over us in the process of, of trying to connect with them or get them to show, that, you know, demonstrate to them that we love them. On the other hand, some of us can be so committed to the logic, the hard facts of life, the suck it up buttercup, right? Ship up or shape out that we may see things that are true, but our kids are left wondering, do mom and dad actually care about me? But notice this paradox of both, love and logic. She brings them together, full force, smashes them, turns up both volumes. And it's a remarkably effective tool because Lemuel listens The reason why we have this oracle from Lemuel's mother is because he listened to her. It was effective. It did what it set out to accomplish. And so we need to remember in our parenting that if we want to do what the Lord has tasked us to accomplish, we need to bring both of these things together, not pit one off of the other. Now she goes into the hard facts of life in verses 3 to 9. She says, Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Lemuel's mother is uh, sort of needling her way into the power structures that he would exhibit and talking to him, warning him about the things that were readily available in ancient courts, women and wine, things that are often readily available to anybody in leadership today, whether it's that in a corporation or any other place. And she's saying, look out, these things are going to destroy you if you give yourself to them. She's saying, Lemuel, your responsibility and your role is to care for those that are under you. And you, can't not, you cannot run away into pleasure. Under the, pre- the pressures of leadership cannot drive you to run away and escape into pleasure because there will be disastrous consequences for you and the community. One commentator summarizes this section this way talking about how the king is supposed to speak up on behalf of those who cannot. I put it beautifully. He says, The king speaks up on behalf of the poor and needy because they are socially and economically too weak to defend themselves against the rich and powerful. The poor may be defenseless against them because they are too ignorant to counteract the obstructionist tactics of the legally savvy, too inarticulate to state their case convincingly, too poor to produce proper evidence, and or too lowly to command respect. In sum, the king must be accessible to the people and champion the cause of the one who cannot otherwise get a fair hearing. What is said here of the king is valid for each person in his or her sphere of activity. Before moving up to the Lehigh Valley in Bethlehem to take the call at... uh, Lehigh University for RUF. My wife and I lived in Lancaster, and we were part of a beautiful church. It was a really good church named New City Fellowship, and it was intentionally in a bad part of town um, so that we would be available to all kinds of different people, right? And you could come in on a Sunday morning and have a a, a doctor in a suit and a tie uh, sitting next to somebody who spent the night at the homeless shelter right up the road. Both 
brothers, brothers in Christ both worshiping. Uh, it was really strange dynamic. It sort of dis- disoriented you because we're not used to rubbing shoulders in the same way that James talks about in his book in the first couple chapters. But it, it, was a, it was a beautiful thing. It was a good thing, but it was hard to work through. And I remember very clearly an, in- an anecdote that I heard sort of tangentially about one gentleman. His name was Don, and he was a doctor. And how he did this sort of thing for somebody in the congregation. There was a, there was a gentleman named John who was undergoing legal issues. I, I don't remember the details of it, um, whether it was jail time or parole, something to that effect. And Don called one of the individuals that was responsible for John's case, and he said, Hi, uh, my name is Dr. Don Davis, and I'm calling to talk to you about John. And Don proceeded to talk about all the ways that John was involved in his life, in the church's life, and he was involved in, in John's life. And because of that phone call, John's circumstances radically changed in those proceedings, and it was an incredible blessing and benefit for him. That is exactly the sort of thing that Lemuel's mother is reminding him to do as the king. She's saying, Lemuel, don't open your mouth to guzzle tons of wine. Open your mouth to speak for people who can't speak. And regardless of where we are in life, each one of us has some sort of kingly or queenly-like responsibilities that we can exercise this role. If If you're a manager at work, you need to be available to everybody in your office, including the janitor. It doesn't matter what their rank or status are. Or if you're somebody who is changing tires in the lube lane at the mechanic, there's people around you, even under you. You may not feel like it, but there's people that we are all responsible for with which we can exercise this sort of kingly and queenly role of opening our mouths on behalf of people, on the behalf of people who cannot. And that is what Lemuel's mother is reminding him about. Then after talking about his his leadership responsibilities, she, she pivots to every favorite mother's thing to talk about with their single son, getting married, finding a good woman. And the way she does this is in the form of an acrostic. An acrostic is just a poem that's arranged in accordance with the alphabet. So verses 10 to 13, each one of these sections starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, if I were to start singing the alphabet song, right, A, B, C, D, E, and just stop, what do you do? You keep going. You can't not stop right? It's supposed to move you forward like one of those horizontal escalators at the airport that makes you walk even faster as you're going throughout the terminals, you know, it just cruises along. That's, what, that's one of the functions of an acrostic. It moves you along. It keeps you going. It's very memorable. It also demonstrates that the type of woman that Lemuel's mother is about to encourage him to find is the A to Z. She's the all that in a bag of chips of women. She's what he wants to find. And she does this in a couple of ways. She highlights three things about this woman. She highlights her value, her character, and her praise. Verses 10 to 31 show the value, the character, and the praise of this sort of a woman. Her value is demonstrated in verses 10 to 12. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels, and the heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Two things are really important in this section to highlight. The first is that word trust. 
Her husband's heart trusts in her. This is actually uh, an incredible compliment because outside of this passage, every other instance in the Bible where somebody's heart trusts in something or someone other than God, it's a big no-no. It's a big negative. This is the only instance where, where that construction is seen in a positive light. And what that does is that elevates this woman as a co-heir, a co-equal with spiritual competency as much as this man. That they are to abide with one another, talk to one another about their delights and their sorrows, about their ideas and their ambitions, and about their walk with the Lord. They are partners in Christ in this endeavor. The second thing that's really important about this section is that the valiant woman here, what's called excellent, she's stylized like a war hero in Israel. That that word excellent is better, is another translation is valiant, right? This whole class of like David's mighty men or other episodes throughout the historical books of the scriptures where people, you know, kick butts and take names. That's how she is being portrayed. And one of the ways that we know that is in verse 11, When it says the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain, that's a military word there. Gain is spoil, shalal in Hebrew. And one one theologian said this, the surprising object, spoil or shalal, a military metaphor implies that the woman has to win essentials like food and clothing through strategy, timely strength, and risk in this fallen world. This woman is one bad mamma-jamma, and you don't want to mess with her. That's what's going on here. That's the sort of value this lady has. And, and Lemuel's mother is trying to paint a picture for him about the type of woman he should pursue. Her character is then highlighted in verses 13 to 27. Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. This woman is a powerhouse of incredible paradox. She's industrious. She's, she's a really hard worker. And at the same time, she's incredibly generous. She's ambitious and she has foresight. She's a type A planner, right? You, you don't buy a field and plant a vineyard in you know, a month. That's, that's not, this is a long-term project that she is involved in. And yet at the same time, she is able to meet with people that don't advance her career, that don't fit into these narrow plans. She's able to open her hand to the poor and needy. 
She's also in the midst of all of this day planning and type anus, relaxed and can laugh. Right? How often can we be people or do we meet people who might have a goal and ambition or drive and yet don't even know how to have a good time or laugh? Or we can be people that love having a good time, but really just are sort of aimless. Again, these two things aren't pitted against each other, but they're combined paradoxically together. I mean, a, a modern analogy would be something like this. She, for years, she diligently thrifts clothes and then sells them on eBay. And with the proceeds, she gets a rental property. And after a, a couple years of that going by, she has her sights set on a duplex in such a way that four of the units are occupied, but one is left open for a family in need who can't really afford to pay market price for the rent. And yet, at the same time, she doesn't sacrifice relationship for the sake of career. She always writes in coffee dates with the girls and can spend time relaxing with family. She's incredible go-getter. But the most important thing out of all of this that Lemuel's mother highlights comes in verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That phrase there, the teaching of kindness, is in Hebrew, the Torah chesed. It's, it's the Torah. Those are big loaded words, big key words in the Bible. It's the Torah. It's the instruction of God. It's the way to live. And chesed, which is God's covenant love for us as his people, his unfailing love, his unending love. She knows how to go toe-to-toe with the best theologians and can stand her ground. This is an amazing, remarkable person. And the result of all of this is a threefold praise, a threefold praise in verses 28 to 31. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he, praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fame, uh, vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. The unity of this poem is so clearly displayed here in the threefold praise because it answers the threefold listen at the beginning of the poem. Had we been listening along with Lemuel, had Lemuel been listening to his mother, remember she encouraged him at the beginning, listen, listen, listen three times. And if we do, what do we hear? Praise, praise, praise. Listening to God's instruction results in praise from the family, praise from the community, and praise from the Lord himself. One commentator put it this way. He said, in short, this valiant wife has been canonized as a role model for all Israel for all time. Wise daughters aspire to be like her. Wise men seek to marry her. And all wise people aim to incarnate the wisdom she embodies each in his own sphere of activity. Now, it would be really tempting to uh, read this impressive resume and just sort of write this lady off. Like, ah, she's just kind of an aristocrat, you know? She has means, she has property, she has servants, she has money, education, income. You know, I don't. Okay, fair enough. However, the only problem with that is the Bible won't let us out so quickly. (laughs) Because A lot of debate that happens in some of the commentaries is, is this supposed to be a real person or a a fictionalized person? Is this like a high ideal and a goal, or is this attainable? 
And the Bible's answer is, no, this is meant to be embodied and real. And the reason why we know that is because of the book of Ruth. And some of the orderings of, of the Hebrew Bible, the, the, the Tanakh, Torah, the Nevi'im, the Katavim, how the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew is uh, put next to each other, um, Ruth falls and Proverbs fall within the writings, the Katavim, and Ruth is put right next to Proverbs 31 to show you, hey, you think this is too far-fetched? Let me give you a whole case study about this type of a woman. In fact, Ruth, the, the words that are described in verse 10, an excellent wife, a valiant woman, are the very same words that are attributed to Ruth. And Ruth demonstrates all of these characteristics, but in radically different circumstances. See, the issue of not at hand is not the uh, quantity that is available to us with which we are to serve the Lord, but the quality of our character and our work. Whether we're coming from a place of means or a place of poverty, like Ruth, it doesn't matter. It is the quality of our character before the Lord and not the quantity of the opportunities that are available to us. Wisdom is about maximizing whatever opportunities we have in front of us for God's glory and our neighbor's good. That's what it's about. So what would it look like if, if our families... If our congregations, if Cornerstone, where I worship, and hope you here as a congregation, if we embody these paradoxical virtues, what would it be like if we attended our children with both love and logic, refusing to pit one off the other? What would it be like if our marriages and our friendships were marked by spiritual intimacy, where our hearts trusted in one another? What if we had an, a, a work ethic that was just industrious, but at the same time, at the end of the day, was also for the purpose of giving away some of what we have received. What would it be like if we had ambition, type A planning, looking to the future, and at the same time could crack a smile and enjoy friends and family and not be so uptight? What would it be like if we had robust theology under the tip of our tongue, the Torah chesed, that at any moment we are able to respond to the seasoned Christian or the skeptic alike with, his, in Paul's words, words that, that are salted with grace, that we know how to respond to each person. I think it would result in praise. Praise from our family. Praise from our friends and our community. Praise from the Lord. But friends, the only way we can have these sort of paradoxical virtues smashed side by side in our lives is if we are embodied by the Holy Spirit, the great giver of paradox, the spirit given by the Lord Jesus. Because these things are nothing we can produce on our own. We can't derive them or plan them or purchase them. They have to be given to us at our request before the living Jesus, who is, in fact, the great paradox of all time. See, the Lord Jesus refused to relate to us as wayward children with either love and logic and pit them against each other. Jesus is the most hard-nosed, logical person there is who calls a spade a spade, denounces our sin and rebellion and depravity, and calls us to repentance this very day, and yet, in that same breath, flings his arms wide open and say, come to me for what you need, for I will in no way turn aside anybody who comes to me. The Lord Jesus, who offers us the greatest spiritual intimacy 
there is available through the actual indwelling of his spirit. In the book of Acts, when Peter is, is preaching in chapter 4, and he's telling the crowd about the gospel and what has happened and how Christ has died and risen, he says, repent, that God may send to you the Christ. That God may send to you the Christ. That's literally what happens with the dwelling of the Spirit, is that Christ is sent to you. And it's more intimate than any relationship we can ever imagine, the dwelling of God himself. The paradox of the Lord Jesus, whose life was marked by such spiritual industry that every waking minute and hour, every thought was on one central goal, accomplishing the Father's will. And yet at the same time, acquiring something that could not benefit him, but had to be given away. The cross was the greatest work, the greatest labor that ever took place. And yet it was no benefit to Christ himself. He had to give away everything that he earned to us who are poor and needy, who need that. And the Lord Jesus, whose greatest plan and greatest ambition of all time was to accomplish that work on the cross, to be so industrious and so studious that we could be brought into a new family, a beautiful and true, though this side of heaven still broken, yet teeming with glory, a new family with laughter and love that one day will be glorified and perfected. Don't you see, friends, the only way that we can get this sort of wisdom is through this sort of man, Jesus Christ, who, as Paul says, has become for us wisdom and righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, this beautiful passage and, uh, quite frankly, the, the humor that's present and, and some of the admonitions from Lemuel to her son, or Lemuel's mother, to his son, and the descriptions of this woman, and the grand vision that it paints before us, Lord, and as easy it is for us to be overwhelmed and burdened uh, by the beautiful picture of these in individuals in this family, in this community, um, I ask that this would be a glowing landmark, Lord, that we would see that, that the true substance of this is something that has been acquired on the cross by Jesus Christ himself on our behalf, and is something that we are growing into, that we were living into, that this is, we, we are called to live out what we already are. This beautiful family is ours in Christ, in the family of God, and we are filling in the details. We're obeying him. Lord, I, I, I thank you for this, and I pray that as we go throughout the week, you would show us each and every way that we are able to open our mouths on behalf of those who can't, that we were able to model for our children and for our neighbors what it's like to put together love and logic and all the other paradoxes found in this passage. Lord, as we go to your table, I pray that you would uh, give us great grace and strength to know and love your son Jesus more. In his name we pray. Amen.